There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Today we're here with Australian icon Dick Smith. You might remember the name from the electronic stores or the solo trips around the world. Now, Dick, thank you for coming on today. It's a pleasure. Great to be here. Yeah, it's good to see you again. I remember last time we spoke was in... 2019, and I wrote you a letter to, uh, I wanted to come and meet you, and, and you actually got, you got back to me and invited me over. Is that incredible? Well, yeah, because I get lots of people writing me letters. <laughs> I can imagine, and it was my first time ever writing a letter, and I had to Google how to do a stamp, um, uh, but then you gave me the time of day, and you gave me so much valuable information when I was young, and you've been so generous with your philanthropy. What made you want to help out someone you didn't know, a young person? Oh, it's interesting. I get lots of letters and I can't help everyone, but I think something in your letter took me on and I thought, well, you're young and maybe I can give you some advice. Quite often I get invited to give talks to older people and I mainly refuse because I think, look, they're set in their ways and I'm going to change their views. But then I get invited to schools to go and talk to schools, which I normally always accept because I know there's going to be young people there and some of them will just take little tips out of things I say and use them in their future life. And so that's why I do it. That's certainly what I took away from that day. And I remember you saying you actually fly your helicopter into the schools and lands on the backyard sometimes. I do. Yeah, it's quite popular with the kids. I can imagine that'd be the most exciting intro they've ever get for a speech. Yeah, yeah not a lot of people arrive by helicopter. <laughs> yeah, probably still not to this day. Do you, do you use your helicopter to get around much? Yes, yes, I use it. I was using it last week to fly up to my daughter's place. That's about an hour, hour and a half's drive north of Sydney, but by helicopter it's 12 minutes. Wow. Uh, two weeks ago I flew it down to Wollongong to see the steelworks. I was given a, a fantastic uh, tour through the, the steelworks, which was fantastic. And once again the trip I think took 26 minutes. I have a farm near Canberra and I can fly down there in about an hour instead of two and a half hours by car. Wow. So a helicopter, one thing about a helicopter, there's no speed limit, and wait for it, there's no radar guns. Is that right? Yep, it's quite fantastic. I like, I like the sounds of that. Yes. Would you, rec- would you recommend getting your helicopter licence? Definitely, yes, if you can. Look, I didn't have any money when I started off, but I managed to make some money through the Dick Smith Electronics business, and when I got enough, it, was, it said it was $23 an hour to learn to fly. So I went out and I learnt to fly fixed-wing aircraft, which I didn't really enjoy that much because there was always a wing below you. It was hard to see out. And if you did see something good, you couldn't land because there wasn't an airport nearby. And then one day I saw a helicopter come in and land and I walked over and spoke to the pilot and I said, how do you fly in bad weather? And he said, oh, he said, in bad weather you fly under the cloud and if ever it gets too bad, you land and you have a cup of tea with somebody. And if you know me, that's my type of flying. So I immediately got on the phone and rang up Bell Helicopters, ordered a helicopter. Then when it arrived in Australia, I had to learn to fly it. That took about three weeks. Three weeks? Three weeks to learn to fly. And then ever since I've been flying helicopters. Wow. So how much harder was it to learn to fly the helicopter versus the fixed wing, the plane? So helicopter's harder to fly. I think to get to solo stage in the fixed wing, it took me about five hours but I think it took me about 15 hours in the helicopter, so three times as long. The hard thing is learning to hover, mm-hmm. and uh, it's like you see those uh, uh, people performing on a stage on a one-wheeled bike. They call them unicycles. Yep. They're quite often on a unicycle and they're juggling, and it looks impossible. Well, a helicopter is just about as stable as a unicycle. It's quite unstable, 
But after a while, it's amazing the human being what it is. You, you just get the feel of it. And I think it took me about 15 hours to solo. And then I got in 35 hours, I got my license and I've been flying ever since. That's incredible. And you're still flying today? Yeah, still flying today. Yeah, lucky I'm in my 80th year and I've still got my medical license so I can still fly. Oh, that, that's incredible. And just right back to when you gave me the time of day and, and met me, you actually gave me the name for my straws company, Sam Straws, right. which I ran with. And I know it's not too far from the, the Dick Smith yeah. franchise. And someone actually gave you the idea to do Dick Smith, right? That's right. I was going to call Dick Smith Electronics. My plan was to call it Alltronics because it sounded like a pretty good name. And I went down to my relative's place and he was in Adelaide, in, in advertising, I should say. And he said to me, what? With a name like Dick Smith, you've got to call it Dick Smith Electronics. And I said to him, oh, no, that doesn't sound too good to me. I want to do fixing car radios in Rolls Royces and Mercedes. And I can't imagine someone coming along to a person with such a common name. And luckily, my, my cousin said to me, Dick, the Dick Smith is an advertiser's dream. Keep Put your own name on it, which I did. And that's one of my success forces, asking advice. So getting that advice and calling it Dick Smith Electronics, anything I then did that created publicity, created publicity for the business. Which with all your stunts played incredibly well. When it, when it comes to asking for advice, how do you know who to ask for advice and, and who to listen to? That's a really good question because you get a lot of wrong advice. <laughs> so asking advice tend to go to someone who's been successful in their own sphere. I had a, a, a friend at the time whose father was quite wealthy. He owned, a, this is back in 1968, and he owned his own aeroplane. He owned a GTO Pontiac, which was the real muscle machine in the day. He owned a boat and a beautiful house. He had it all. How's he got all those things? He must have a few clues. And so I asked him advice and he was the one who helped me. He told me in the early days, not only just to open electronic businesses, but to try and place a deposit on the building that I was operating from. And so I did. And uh, even before my wife and I bought our first house or our only house in Sydney, we bought the commercial premises. And Lots of people think my money has come from electronics and from publishing Australian Geographic, but in fact, most of my money's coming from investment in commercial buildings. So that was good advice I was given in the early days. So how do you know if the advice is correct? You use one word, common sense. And so a load of common sense. Remember, you won't always get the correct advice because there are people around who always do the wrong thing and never learn from it. I, I know some people like this, talented. <laughs> But you see them making mistake after mistake. So use a bit of common sense and normally ask advice from two or three different people and use the advice that sounds the most logical. And the, and the common sense to justify whatever you think will work best. Absolutely. Because that's something else I've heard you talk about, the making most of the money from real estate. And Dick Smith Electronics was incredibly successful. But yeah. the real estate, do you still own the real estate? Was it the real estate that the Dick Smith stores were on? Yes, I still own lots of real estate and that's why I'm quite wealthy, very fortunate, because I know I sold Dick Smith Electronics to Woolworths. They ran it for 39 years and then sold it and it went broke, which was quite as... They sold it originally uh, to Woolworths at the time. No, Woolworths originally sold it to... I've forgotten. I think it was a capital-type company that was bringing money in from the United States and everything. And then they expanded it and it only lasted two and a half years before it went broke. It was very sad. One of the reasons it went broke, and this is an interesting thing, I always thought when I sold Dick Smith Electronics to Woolworths, I had about 36 shops, I thought there was a possibility of 100 shops because we sold to electronic enthusiasts. So I thought to Woolworths, about 100 shops will be enough. Woolworths ended up opening 350 shops. And in the end, they had to stop just selling electronic components, which were high profit lines. They started selling TV sets and washing machines and things like that, all of which there wasn't a lot of markup and margin profit in. And that was the reason in the end they needed to have growth all the time and it's impossible to have eternal growth or in a finite world. Someday you have to say no more greed, let's just run on balance. Yeah. That's, that's, that's really interesting because a lot of your 
what I heard about in the book was the profit margins being 40, 50% yep. quite large on the electronical components. So when they swapped over to the TVs and the washing machines that were too low. The, the profit lines were. Yes, in my day, I was taught, I, I asked advice, I went overseas and uh, asked electronic companies in America, how should I run my business? And amazingly enough, they told me, they were very happy, this is unusual, a little Australian arrived from overseas asking them advice. And they said, oh, you need at least 50% margin. Now, 50% margin is a dollar, is, is 100% markup. In other words, if you're selling something for a dollar, it should have cost you 50 cents. That's a 50% margin. So I took advice of that. And uh, at the time, we used to manufacture everything in Australia. But the Prime Minister at the time, Gough Whitlam, changed the duty, the protective duty, and basically wiped out the manufacturing. That allowed me to import and the prices were a lot lower, so I was able to sell lower but still make that 50% margin. And I remember the year I finally sold to Woolworths, the company made, it turned over $32 million and it made $8 million net profit, so that was 25 cents in the dollar. That's a pretty successful company. It's incredibly profitable. Yep, definitely. And that was from making sure you're bringing in the right things with the right profit margins. And, and selling lots of small items at a good markup. I didn't sell television sets, didn't sell uh, radiograms, or that's what they call in those days. Anything that was expensive, I didn't sell. I also basically sold my own brand. We had the Dick Smith brand of CB radio, and that had the advantage that no one could really compare the price. And we knew we were value for money because we imported directly. But uh, you weren't having to compete with people who are, some shopkeepers are really stupid and will sell things so cheaply, they're going to go broke. And uh, they'll take everyone into bankruptcy with them if you, if you follow that down to the lowest price. Yeah, instead of competing on price, sometimes competing on quality as well. And- yes, yeah, quality is an important one, but uh, price is most important. And uh, you only have to look at the big supermarkets today. There's Coles and Woolworths, and then there's the German-owned Aldi now. Aldi has less staff, so it can sell cheaper. But I try and encourage Australians to go to the Aussie-owned Coles and Woolworths because they're employing Australians and, and you're sharing the wealth. And so when you buy something there, you know you're employing Australians. That's pretty good. Giving back, back to the nation. Yeah, yeah. Aldi are German-owned. They're owned by two German billionaires. I think they're worth $40 billion each. Wow. They're super, they're super secretive. They're not known as philanthropists. And when I tried to compete with them with Dick Smith Foods, I couldn't because to give you an example, our peanut butter, because we were as Australian as you can get, our peanuts came from Kingaroy and then we processed the peanuts in Sydney using Australian labour where we pay decent wages. Now Aldi, they quickly, they came to Australia and they originally bought from Australia, but then it wasn't long before they were buying their peanuts in Argentina and then getting the product made in Argentina where the wages are very low. And so for Australian farmers to compete with Argentinian wages, it was impossible. So in the end, we had to withdraw our product. Today, is it still possible to have successful products made, supplied and pushed out in Australia? I think it is. I think if, if, if I was a young person now and I started producing food, I'd put my own name on it. I'd call it Australian owned and made. Yep. And uh, then I'd get some free publicity on a current affair or one of the TV stations about how important this was. And then I'd go and try and convince Woolworths and Coles that I was going to support Australia and they should be supporting Australia too. It's a good business plan for anyone anyone listening at home. The the publicity, the free publicity was a huge move that you made all the time, getting that support behind you. And that's something I do with my social media, with my diving. Being able to make videos around what I do and post cost me nothing uh, to post and share across these media channels that can be seen by millions. Yes. But when they didn't have social media, you still managed to pull off these public Yes. And what I did in my day was, um, of course, there were, it was very hard to get on television. There were only uh, five big television stations. There was no such thing as uh, YouTube or anything like that. No and TikTok back there? No, nothing like that. And so, but I found out, I'll tell you this story. I was in a dentist's waiting room waiting for the dentist and there was a magazine there, as there always are. I opened up the magazine and it had a picture of a petrol-powered pogo stick. 
Now you might wonder what that was because it's the strangest thing I'd ever heard, but it was a pogo stick that you can jump up on down on with a little two-stroke petrol motor attached to it. And it was it cost $120, so I immediately sent off for one and I got it back and I jumped around on it, put the petrol in, and it was completely useless. You could do about two jumps before it would backfire. Were they selling this thing legit? Yeah, they were selling it legitimately. Okay. It was beautifully made, beautifully engineered, but I could never get more than two or three hops out of it yeah. before it would backfire. But I knew, I thought, this is the way to get some publicity, and I never, ever had any free publicity. But I rang up the Sun-Herald newspaper, which is still today one of our leading newspapers in Sydney. Did you just call the local yeah, one? I just rang up and I said, I've got news. Can I talk to news? So they put me through to a reporter and uh, his name, I'm just trying to think of his name because he became quite famous as he would write stories about unusual things. Peter Spooner was his name. He would have become a frequent writer for you. He did. Unusual his name was Peter Spooner and I said, Peter, I said, Dick Smith here, I'm the electronic nut. And he sort of, you could feel him a bit strange at the end of the phone. I said, I've just bought in this petrol-powered pogo stick and I'm going to bring 20,000 in for every housewife and they'll all be going to the supermarket on the petrol-powered pogo stick in future. They won't be walking. Now, it was the most ridiculous thing. It wasn't going to happen. But he said, oh, can I come out and do a story? And I said, yeah, that's my idea. So he came out from the Sydney Morning Herald office to my office in northern Sydney and we took it up to the petrol station to see how much it would cost to fill up with fuel. I think it was two cents. That's all the fuel we could get in it. And then I did a jump on it, and two jumps before it backfired. I never told him it can't do more than two jumps, but he thought it was great. And so he wrote this article about the uh, bringing it in to sell to housewives to go to the supermarket. And the next day, on the, that was on the Sunday, on the Sunday there was a major photo of me with the pogo stick. And what I couldn't believe is that night the TV station rang up, Channel 9, which was the leading Channel 9 as it is pretty well these days, and they had a Tonight Show and they invited me in with my petrol-powered pogo stick on the Tonight Show. Were so you nervous to use it? I was very, very nervous to go on national television yeah. live. With a pogo stick that you yeah, With yeah. a pogo stick that didn't work. <laughs> yeah. And so I quickly, I had... Our motive in those days was the little dickhead, a picture of Dick Smith in black and white. So I stuck those, I cut them out from little ads we had. I stuck them on the pogo stick knowing that the media would probably show the engine and so there would be a Dick Smith figure and went on on the, uh, the, the late show on Channel 9 and uh, jumped around on the stage, only two jumps before it backfired, and told them my story about how all the housewives would be buying them in future. And then the next day I got invited on the Today Show. And so from that point on I learned if you answer things quickly and in a fun way that you get publicity. And so from that point on I was a regular on television. I, I saw overseas a thing called an earthquake detector. It was the most ridiculous thing. It was a plastic box with a, a, a weight in it that would move across and ding the side of the box if there was an earthquake. Okay. I think it might have set off a bell. Yeah. So I bought that. And I rang up Peter Spooner. I said, I've got a new invention, an earthquake detector. Every family should have one. And so that went on newspaper, then it went on television. And from that point on, I was a regular on television, the uh, famous uh, show in Melbourne, and uh, just quite wonderful. Were the TV shows supportive of your ideas or did every time where they kind of fall, did they think maybe this... This one's something Dick's actually going through with. Look, I, I asked her, well, I used to go down on the, on the uh, Don Lane show in Melbourne, which was popular, and they would fly me down first class, put me up at the top hotel and put me on. And years later, I asked Peter Feynman. Peter Feynman was the man who was the director of Crocodile Dundee 1. Oh, wow. Quite a fantastic bloke. And he was the producer of the TV show Don Lane Show. And years later, I met him and I said, why did you keep asking me down? I can't believe it. And he said, Dick, you were good talent. I thought maybe because they wanted to get more coverage from Sydney because they're a Melbourne-based show. But I knew how to answer things in quick grabs. And if ever you're going on television or radio, don't give great long talks, do it quickly and have a bit of fun involved. And uh, I think I must have appeared on the Don Lane show 15 times. And, I'm, wow. and here I am on television. As my shops are expanding around Australia, I know 
that Dick Smith's name and Dick Smith's shops were getting publicity right around Australia for absolutely nothing. You would have had to pay tens of thousands of dollars for TV advertising. I was getting it for nothing and I was being paid to go there. Just by being creative and thinking outside the box. Absolutely. And you could do it today if there was a young entrepreneur who's a bit of a character, you'd end up on the local TV shows. You've just got to think of something that's a bit unusual and different. At one stage, we towed an iceberg into Sydney Harbour. Now, it wasn't a real iceberg. It was a fake iceberg. But I told everyone years before that I was going to tow a proper iceberg up. The Dixicles. And, and, and chop it up into little icicles and call them Dixicles. And that got publicity itself, and people believed it. It was just, I completely made it up. But then one of my staff said, Dick, April Fool's Day is coming. Why don't we tow a fake iceberg into Sydney Harbour? So we hired a big barge and we hired plastic sheeting and shaving foam and uh, firefighting foam, and we towed the iceberg at, just as a barge at night out from Sydney Heads. And then what we did, we notified every newspaper and every TV station that the iceberg was coming. And we said it was, we didn't say it was coming tomorrow because that would have been April Fool's Day and they would have been suspicious. So we said the iceberg's coming next week. And uh, in the end, the media, my home, the, the phone just jammed with the media ringing me up about the iceberg. The next morning, we got all of our staff, we had about 300 staff, to ring the TV stations and radio stations and newspapers and say, What's that coming through the heads? It looks like an iceberg. So all the switchboards were jammed. So they realised that something big was on. And then through the heads in the rain, it was a rainy, misty morning, we had a tug towing the iceberg where we'd spread the uh, firefighting foam and the plastic sheeting, and it just looked like an iceberg. And it was April Fool's Day, of course. Were you on the iceberg? I was on the iceberg. And as we towed it up, we towed it right up to the Opera House. And when we got up to the Opera House, we announced we had, we were live on Radio 2SM. We had a two-way radio on the 2SM. And when we got to the Opera House, we announced that it was an April Fool's joke. And on the way, we had thousands of people on the headlands who'd come to see the iceberg. And even today, if you look up world's greatest hoaxes, it's normally on that list. That's fine. Getting your own team behind to support it. And it cost about $1,200 to to hire hire the barge and the tug. And, the, and buy the firefighting foam and to buy the plastic sheeting, about $1,200. And it probably, it got us coverage around the world and is still getting coverage. It's, a, it's an incredible feat to be able to get, get on the TV with these ideas and get some publicity. It seems like having fun with it is something you've always loved to do. Under yeah. all the stress, how, how do you continue to have fun yes. with it? Yes, it's funny, uh, we have our books that we sell called Fun Way into Electronics. And I was going to call my biography Fun Way to a Fortune because that's really what it was. We did have a lot of fun. And I think that was, I've never taken business too seriously and uh, we just love to have fun. And uh, anyone who worked for me, I had behind my desk, I had a great big sign. It was four feet high in big letters. It had no and, uh, and great big light bulb was that lit up and a huge 12-inch fire bell. So if I pushed the button on my desk, the lights would light up, no, with the bell ringing, no, no, no. And uh, the media came in, I was being interviewed, and they said, what's the great big no sign behind your desk? And I said, oh, that's for when the staff asked me for a rise. If they want a pay rise, I pushed the button and I showed them I'd push the button and <laughs> the, the bell would go off and the great light would light up and you'd hear the bell ringing right throughout the whole factory. And quite a few of the reporters believed it. They thought I was this incredibly tough boss. Now, of course, it wasn't true. I didn't say that to staff, but it was just a great story to get publicity. And once again, that went right around Australia. What was Dick like as a boss? What was your leadership style? Uh, I'm tough. Um, I don't like waste. Uh, I, my success has come. Another success force is surrounding yourself with capable people mm. and It's hard to get good people and so normally I'll try someone for six months and if they're no good, I have to say, you've got to go. But the good ones stay. And even now, I'm still friends with all the good ones who worked at Dick Smith Electronics and Australian Geographic. And uh, it's wonderful to still know them and know that they're all part of the success. But I'm pretty tough as a boss and, uh, yeah, tough enough to say people who are not succeeding, look, you're not suited here go and work somewhere else. Which I suppose is needed when you have your vision, know what needs to be done and 
Definitely, yeah. Yes, look, surrounding yourself with capable people is the key and everyone you put on won't be that capable. You have to try and pick the good ones. What about when you went from three employees to thousands? What was that like? When I went from a small number of employees, I really liked the business. 20 or 30, I knew everyone, up to about 100. I really liked the business. But when it went to over 100 and I didn't know everyone, that was one of the reasons I sold the business Mm. because I've never wanted to become a billionaire. I'm still not a billionaire. I'm well off, but not a billionaire because I wanted to know everyone who worked for me. And that was one of the prime reasons I sold Dick Smith Electronics to Woolworths. Now, I got over $20 million for it, and I was 39 years of age, so I was young. I didn't have to work again, but I always had this work ethic, so I started Australian Geographic magazine, which I then sold that for over $40 million. Even more than? Yeah. You sold that for more than Dick Smith? D- double what I sold Dick wow, Smith Wow, I didn't know that. Yep. That's incredible. Yeah, so it was very successful, and it's still going today. It was bought by Fairfax, and then a few other companies have owned it since then. It was highly profitable because... We only sold it by subscription and we had 200,000 people sending in $26 a year before we had even started to make the magazine. Wow. So it was a really good way of making money. Nat Geo, uh, well, Australian Geographic was some of my favourite stores as a kid. Wonderful. You could get all all kinds of different incredible... Yeah, well, the Australian Geographic stores were started by my employee, Ike Bain, who you'll read about in the book, and he... Uh, it was just a fantastic employee to have. Talk about surrounding yourself with capable people. He always wanted to expand the business and I didn't. Mm. But every now and then I'd let him do it and that made me and him quite good money. When you come up with the strange geographic, it was from a, a lot of your travels that you saw this idea. How important is travelling? Travelling is very important, going around Australia especially. The main reason I started Australian Geographic is that I wanted to change my image. I had an image of being a, an electronics whiz who was always on TV spruiking some latest gadget and a bit of a fun man but not very serious at all. But I was also interested in the out of doors and conservation. I'd always been young, going bushwalking with the scouts and loved the environment. And I got involved in what was called the Franklin River Blockade in 1982, there was a huge blockade in Tasmania to try and stop the Gordon below Franklin Dam being built. And I helped the famous Bob Brown, who was the instigator of the campaign. And when I was down there, the media kept making out that, oh, here's Dick Smith just for the publicity. He wouldn't know what he's talking about. So I needed to change my image. And so my plan was to start a geographical magazine that was called Dick Smith's Magazine and of Adventure and Discovery. And that magazine completely changed my image over the next five years. I became known as a conservationist. And so that was the reason for the magazine. I had no idea that I'd make any money out of it. And even though I said we sold it for 40 million, we've since given that all away to various charities. So I didn't make any money out of it at the end. I had plenty of money from the Dick Smith sale. But you enjoyed the work, you enjoyed being out there and and doing stuff. Yeah, and sponsoring adventurers all around the world and all around Australia and doing, we went on Australian Geographic Expeditions to Cooper's Creek in the middle of Australia, one of my favourite places. We went out into the deserts in Northern Territory, Cape York, and then in the Kimberleys, and so saw lots of Australia. Was that a great way to run a business while supporting your travel adventures? Yes, it was a great way. And uh, in those days, I was well into helicopters, so I'd fly to the expedition by helicopter. All the others would have to go by a car or four-wheel drive. And so it allowed me to mix my love of adventure with the love of travelling and the love of Australia. That's something that I find even today really useful with my diving and my social media. Being able to have my social media support, my diving allows me to do two things that I love. That's sensible. Doing really well. That's, that's, you're certainly on the right line there. And national, well, Australian geographics, because you were so passionate about the environment and did a lot of bushwalking as a kid, what were some of your most memorable moments? Uh, probably with Australian Geographic, we went down and we did the walk. It's called the uh, Overland Track Walk in Tasmania. It goes from Lake St. Clair to, uh, to, to Cradle Mountain, or it can go the other way, Cradle Mountain to Lake St. Clair. And it's a walk where you can do it. You can do it the expensive way, which I've done it, where there are actual cabins with food supplied and bedding and all the rest of it. Or you can do it the cheap way, which I've done it a couple of ways, where you just take your own pack and you can either 
stay in a cabin that the national parks have supplied, or maybe you'll have to camp, depending on how many people are there at the time. And that's a beautiful walk. So anyone who's listening, if you get the chance, I I was only 17 years of age when I first did it. It's four or five days of walking. It's called the uh, Cradle Mountain Cradle Mount to Lake St. Clair Overland Track Walk. Then I've done the Frenchman's Cap Walk and uh, my wife and myself recently financed the upgrade of the track and the upgrade of one of the huts because it's a beautiful walk into Frenchman's Cap, a bit harder than the Overland Track. And then the other magnificent walk in Tasmania is the South Coast Track Walk. Haven't done it. I'm now in my 80th year and just not fit enough to do it. I've flown it a number of times in my helicopter. And wow, I say to people, if ever you get the chance, do the South South Coast Track Walk in Tasmania. It's one of the most beautiful walks in the world. And when you talk about sensible risk-taking, you've done a lot of- Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Risk taking in your life. How do you manage risk while also taking necessary risks? Well, it's really difficult. I call my risk-taking responsible risk-taking, but not all of it is that responsible. I mean, for example, flying a single-engined aircraft across the Atlantic Ocean in bad weather, when I was halfway between Greenland and Iceland, I got into a terrible storm and I was at 500 feet down over the water and then the weather closed in on me and I couldn't... uh, uh, turn around and go back. So you're out in the water, no help, terrible yeah, weather. 400, 800 kilometre crossing of one of the wildest oceans on earth in a little single engine helicopter that had no floats. It couldn't float. It would take 30 seconds to sink. So if I had an engine failure, it would, a helicopter's auto rotate. I would auto rotate down to the water. That would take about 25 seconds. Then it would float for about 15 seconds as it rolled over and I'd have to get out into my little life raft and somehow climb into it. But I remember looking down on that flight thinking, if I have an engine failure now, I'm going to be dead. I won't get out of it. So that was crossing the Atlantic. Then in crossing Australia in the balloon, balloons are, people couldn't believe at one stage, we took off from Carnarvon near the west coast and the plan was to try right right across Australia to near the East Coast. No one had ever done that before. There'd been four or five attempts. How do you control the balloon? Well, that's the problem. (laughs) The wind, the balloon only goes with the wind. And we knew that there's a jet stream called a jet stream across Australia in winter. And so the plan was to get into the balloon, climb up into the jet stream, which is above 20,000 feet. You can't even breathe without oxygen. And then hold on and hope that the jet stream will take you across Australia. Well, we got airborne. We first of all got blown the incorrect way. We got blown towards Africa. But eventually we climbed enough and we got into the jet stream. And at one stage we were doing 160 kilometres an hour. In a balloon. In a balloon, 160 kilometres an hour. We're at 23,000 feet, oxygen masks on. And I thought, if we get out of this alive, we're going to be lucky because you can't land the balloon in more than about 10 kilometres of wind because the gondola would just get smashed along in the ground and hit trees and hit power lines and things like that. And so, but as I've been so lucky in my adventures, after being 160 kilometres an hour and after 40 hours in the air, we started to descend. We crossed the Great Dividing Range and we were just at the back of Surface Paradise. We started to descend and I'm pretty scared by now with John Wallington, my co-pilot. I think we're going to get injured when we crash. 
We even thought maybe we should keep going and land in the ocean because our gondola would float. Anyway, we started descending. Then I looked down and it was on the Clarence River and I realised the water was completely smooth. There was no wind at all. So what we'd done, we'd taken off from Carnarvon in the west coast of Australia, taken off in zero wind, flown it up to 160 kilometres an hour, then descended and landed in no wind just near surface paradise. So talk about luck. So I have responsible risk-taking, but I call that luck as well. Yeah, a combination of the two. Yeah, it was 40 hour, 43 hours in the air and uh, a lot of scariness when you're up high. It was hard to sleep. We had to have oxygen masks on. The whole time, all 40 hours, you're up, need, need oxygen? No, just about the whole time because we were above 10,000 feet, yes. What equipment did you have with you? Any we, maps, any gauges yeah. of how high? Yeah, we had maps. We had aviation. We had a special transponder that would tell the airlines where we were. We had a, a high-frequency radio to talk to ham radio operators. I think it might have been the very first days of satellite phones. And I even had a TV set which we somehow managed to pick up the TV signals from Adelaide and had me on doing an interview. Really? So that was amazing. And, that would be a special moment. Uh, yeah, it was a special moment. But, uh, yes, flying a balloon and then a few years later I was going to try and fly the balloon from Australia to New Zealand and then a friend of mine, John Singleton, he's an advertising man, he said, no, no, you should fly the other way. He said, it'll get more publicity if you fly from New Zealand to Australia. And I said, John, that's impossible. The, wi- the balloons only fly in the wind and the winds are westerly all around the world. And he says, oh, no, he said, I'll bet you 100 grand you can't do it. So I went off to the Met Bureau and I said, I've got this challenge. Would it ever be possible to fly a balloon against the wind from New Zealand to Australia? And first of all, they said, no, that's impossible. But after a few days, they came back and they said, oh, look, we've gone into our computer and if you flew very low and there was a high-pressure system stationary over the Tasman Sea, you might just be able to do it. And so I said, okay. So I rang up John Singleton, your bet's on. We sent the balloon to New Zealand and we waited for about two months for the right high-pressure system to be there and we took off in the balloon and flew at about 4,000 feet this time, only at about 80 kilometres an hour. And we came, left New Zealand. First of all, went a bit towards South America, but then started to curve around, went past Norfolk Island and came in just below surface paradise and landed the gondola on the waves and actually surfed it in on the waves onto the beach. So that was very lucky. When, when you have a map up there, but you have no real way to do it yourself, is it useless? Yeah, the map the map for ballooning is pretty useless. Okay, yeah. That was pretty useless. But on my flying, I've done five flights around the world and the original maps were all paper maps and always out of date and they had great big stamps on them. F- flying on the non-free flying area, you'll be shot down immediately. Because when I flew around the world, the uh, Cold War existed and I couldn't land the the Iron Curtain in the Cold War. And the only way I could go from uh, Japan to Alaska to get around the world was to land on a ship halfway. And I put some drums of fuel on a ship. It was heading to Seattle across the Northern Pacific. And then I took off from Japan, flew for seven hours, found the ship, no GPS in those days, but I had a beacon for home on it. Landed on the ship, the ship's rolling around and we managed to put the drum of fuel in, then took off and flew to Alaska. It was further than going from Sydney to Auckland in one day on the helicopter. I was lucky to get away with it. When you're flying around the world in the helicopter, does it need maintenance every now and then or can you just yes. sit? Yeah, around the world. I started the helicopter flight in Fort Worth, Texas, because that's where they make the helicopters. So I wheeled it out of the factory I flew it then across to England and that was about 100 hours and they did the maintenance there. Then I flew it to Singapore, maintenance there, and then to Alaska, maintenance there, and then maintenance back when I got back to the American Bell factory. So about four lots of maintenance to go around the world. To go around the world. And I heard when you were getting it from the factory, you told them, we're performing the first solo around the world trip. Please take care when we're making this thing. Yeah, that's a lot of people wouldn't believe, and this is what I call responsible risk-taking. When I decided to do the flight, I did a special trip to the Bell factory in America and got all the maintenance workers in a room, and I said, my name's Nick Smith. I'm going to fly, try and fly a helicopter around the world. It had never been done in those times. 
And I said, you're going to be putting it together. We're going to put a label on it, around the world attempt, and would you give it special attention? And everyone clapped and cheered. And so they were all part of it. So the helicopter I got flew incredibly reliable for up to a 1,000 hours. I eventually donated it to the Sydney Powerhouse Museum. And if you walk in there, it's hanging on the roof. That's the helicopter that went around. Never had any any engine failures with it, thank heavens. Because you're putting a lot of trust in it. You've got one engine. You're in the middle of the ocean. Yep. Yeah, I probably wouldn't be here if the engine had failed. So it just shows you. People ask me, so I've done five flights around the world, and they say, how come you're alive? And I say, because North American technology is so reliable these days. And my early heroes, Bert Hinkler, Kingsford Smith, they all died because probably engine failures, we don't really know what happened. Yeah, because you did the big trip to find the Kookaburra. Yes, yes, the Kookaburra aircraft, that was a a little Western Widgeon plane that had gone to search for Smithy. Kings of Smith had got lost in flying across Australia to England. Is that why Sydney Airport is named Kingsford Smith? Yeah, Smith, that's the famous aviator. Well, Kingsford Smith got lost up in the Kimberley in northwestern Australia, and so all these planes went to search for him. One of them was... Uh, Anderson in the little plane called the Kookaburra. Anderson got forced down in the desert, in the Tanami Desert, north of Alice Springs, and died of thirst with Hitchcock, his mechanic. And the plane got left there for nearly 50 years until I found it. And uh, quite a search to go out in the desert with helicopters transversing backwards and forwards. And eventually I found that plane. And if you go to the Central Australian Aviation Museum, you can see the plane. It's incredible. And when it comes to dealing with pressure, flying around the world, things have to go well, or business, and you're sorting stuff out, what's been your mechanism to deal with pressure? Well, dealing with pressure on flying, see, most of my flights have been solo. It's really good if you've got pressure to be able to bounce the problem off other people. And that's why in business, I've always had a top group of management and I've, even though I'm the ultimate dictator, I've always owned my businesses. Uh, I've always had two or three top people who I discuss things with. And sometimes I don't even follow my decision. If the others have a different view, I'll quite often accept what they say because that's being sensible. But on the solo flights, I, the way I'd cope with pressure is I got frightened. And getting frightened normally makes you be a lot more careful And at different stages after that terrible flight across the Atlantic in the terrible weather where the weather nearly closed in on me, when I eventually finished that leg and landed in Iceland, I remember thinking, well, I'm going to give up the flight here. It's too too dangerous. I won't go any further. But I I was thinking of some excuse I could make up to tell the media why I wasn't going to come on. And I walked into the coffee shop at the airport in Iceland, at Reykjavik Airport, And I had a cup of coffee and there was a ray of sun. It had been bad weather the whole way across, but a ray of sunlight came down and was shining into the coffee shop. And I remember thinking, oh, maybe it wasn't too bad. Maybe I'll just just do the next section and get as far as London because that mean I would have had the first helicopter solo across the Atlantic. Quite an achievement. And so my flight was like that. It was very much pushing myself on when I got frightened and... Adventuring is one form. Running businesses is quite different. You're not normally risking your life when you're running your business. Yep. But my suggestion is ask advice when making the decision, then get some close people around you who you can check that that's the correct advice and then make your decision and stick with it sort of thing. I've never had problems in making tough decisions. I've always been able to do that. Yeah, because... Someone that maybe is fearful to move forward or to try something and then they step away from it. Because I, I found with my diving too, like whenever I go up on the platform every day, you're constantly faced with concerns, fears, because things can go wrong, just like in a helicopter. That yeah. Maybe I outside your control, but just by doing it anyway yes. and just pushing through the fear and having a crack, like you just never know the positives that can come through. Yes. Well, you know, you know that really well, and that's something that I don't really know in that way. But we all have different experiences, of course, and that's why it's good for you to be communicating these to people. Yeah, and that's part of the reason why I'd start the podcast to share individuals' journeys and and yeah, challenges. Sure. And then, 
Jumping on to some more of the adventures, when you were traveling to Russia during the Cold War, yep. what was that like being there? It was interesting because this was in 1966, the middle of the Cold War, but I found that you could get a busload of school kids or young adults were allowed to go to Russia. And I managed to get on a bus. It was called the Trafalgar Tours. It was from London to London. Didn't cost that much money. And uh, so we went across the non-Soviet states, which was in those days Sweden, uh, then into Finland, and then we crossed into the Soviet Union. And we weren't allowed to take photos of things, but we actually ended up in Moscow on May Day in 1966, and these huge procession of military were being paraded past. And I didn't realise that the rockets, I only found out later, had intercontinental ballistic missiles and nuclear warheads, and they were just all going past us. Were they the very things that they were threatening the world with? They were the very things that were threatening the world, and there was the Cold War, and everyone was scared, were we going to have nuclear weapons sent to us? And only the year before, when I was at home in Sydney, I'd walked down to the backyard and looked south towards the city and imagined a red flame coming towards us because many of us were quite scared there was going to be a nuclear war and Sydney would be a target and we'd have this red flame that would just incinerate everything. The interesting thing was on this trip I did in May 1966 into Russia, every, all, all the people were friendly, incredibly friendly. And, and I suddenly realised it's governments and politicians that cause wars. It's not just typical people. And so it was wonderful. Russia was quite poor in those days. But to go through Russia then and went into Poland and East Germany, which was all part of the Soviet Union. And I came through the Berlin Wall, which doesn't exist now, but did exist. And I came from the Russian side into the West. And that was quite exciting. But in this bus tour of being able to see behind the Iron Curtain where you have to be very careful what you did. Yeah, I've been very fortunate enough to travel with diving all around the world and that's something I've, I've noticed. Nearly all people just want the same things, like to yep. be valued, to be loved, to have yep. things that they can work towards. Like mo- for the majority, most people in the world just want the same things. No, you're exactly right. No, it's terrible. Terrible what's happening at the moment. Yeah, hopefully they can, they can sort it out because it's never the, the people. No, no, you're absolutely right. No. They're pretty, pretty understanding and you were saying that everywhere you went, really people wanted to help and support and just by having a smile yes. and saying hello to them. One of the best examples was only a couple of years ago, I decided after five floods around the world that, we, that I, myself and my wife should drive around the world. So we bought a big Ford F550 crew cab. They call them, uh, we, we call them a utility and um, they call them a pickup truck. We bought one in the United States and we fitted a camper van on it. And then we drove it up to Alaska and then we drove from Alaska right down through the lower 48 and we drove to um, New York and then we put it on a ship across to London. Then we drove from one end of London, of Great Britain to the other and then into Sweden, uh, Norway, Finland, right across Russia, into Mongolia, then the Gobi Desert and back up into Siberia. Did anyone stop it or, or have we issues? We had to have paperwork everywhere, but the amazing thing was everyone was so friendly. And we'd just camp at night beside the road and we had a piece of paper which in Russian said, we are two Australians travelling around the world. Can we park here tonight? Because we'd want to park our vehicle for the night. And that, they, their grim look at reading the letter would go into a big smile and then they'd invite us into their house and bring us out food and everything. They were just the most lovely, wonderful people. Mm-hmm. And so on that flight, we, that drive, we ended up across Japan, then drove Perth to Sydney via the Gun Barrel Highway, then shipped it back to Los Angeles and drove it back to Denver where we started. So that was about 50,000 kilometres around the world and just wonderful, friendly people everywhere. And Pip, you've been with nearly your whole life. Yep. Have you got any relationship advice for anyone listening? Oh, well, luck. I mean, when I married Pip, she was 19, I was 24. She was in the Girl Guides, I was in the Scouts. That's how we met. But we had no idea that we would be successful. In other words, I used to look at millionaires and think, oh, I wouldn't want to become one of those. They should be sharing their money with everyone. So I didn't really like millionaires. And then we started to do very well at a very young age. And we've, we've got a Dick and Pip Smith 
Family Foundation, which gives money away. Uh, I'm proud to say we've already given over $70 million to important causes. That's incredible. Yeah, it is a fantastic. And we do that because we feel we have a responsibility to do that. And so we've helped everything from conservation to refugees in countries all around the world and to all of those really important things. And I think we were very lucky because we made good money when we were young. I mean, a lot of families bust up because of money reasons. So we've never had the money reason. We've always had ample money. And uh, we've always had similar interests. We love the out of doors. We love adventuring. But to be with someone what's uh, 55 years after I married her, quite fantastic. That's incredible. And when things were hard, like when some of your stock was stolen and yep. things weren't good and the money wasn't there and you were unsure whether the business was going to survive, how did you two make it through that time? I don't, we were stronger together. Yeah, it was amazing that it was sort of a, something that we had never imagined would happen and I thought the business was going to go broke. And uh, I thought we've lost everything. Uh, I think Pip at the time, she, she was not just working in an office job, so she had some income. And I knew I'd have to go out and get a job and close down the business. It was only luck that an accountant said to us, oh, you can get a, a person called a receiver appointed to your business. And I said, what's a receiver? And they said, oh, that's a firm of accountants who will run the business and try and help you pay back the debts because we'd had all this stock stolen. And as the book tells the story, we not only paid back the debts, but that was the business they sold for over $20 million only 10 years later. So if you do the right thing, good things will happen to you. I call it karma. Because you had the option of actually just shutting it down, yep. going to bankruptcy and then not paying the debtors. Yep. But you said, no, I want to pay them back. Yeah, most of the, my advisors said, Dick, you've had the stock stolen. It's not your fault. We got a police warrant, but we could never find the stock that was stolen. But yes, the, the advice was close the business down and everyone will lose their money. And I remember thinking, well, that, that's not very right. How could I face people again? And so that's why I paid the money back and... It's almost as if there is a God. I did the right thing, so the right thing happened to me. And it came, it came back to you. Yep. When all your friends got their degrees and were getting the professional jobs yep. and you were still trying to figure out business, what was that time like for you when you were maybe a bit uncertain about if you're on the right path? Yeah, I had quite an inferiority complex when I was young because I was hopeless at school. In my primary school days, I came 45th out of 47th in the class. So I thought I was just dumb. People would probably say today that I'm a bit dyslectic. You know, I've never been tested, but maybe that was the problem. But then when I finally got a job working in a factory and my friends had gone off to university and I thought I'm never going to be able to pass a degree, I just didn't consider that I had the abilities to do that, and I felt I was a failure. I was working in a factory, just doing process work, and I thought my friends are all going to be successful and I'm going to be a failure. And it was only after the second year of running my business where my accountant said to me, Dick, you've made more money than the Prime Minister of Australia makes. Now, in those days, he was making about $30,000 a year, and I'd made more than that. I, I couldn't believe it. I said to him, well, how come I haven't got any money? <laughs> and he said, well, you've got more stock. And you've got debtors, people who owe you money, and you had all these reasons, good explanation. And that's sort of explained to me why I didn't have any money, but I was doing okay. I mean, at the time, you'd also paid a lot of tax uh, yep. and all, all that had gone. So you're like, where's the money? But that's right. I paid tax as well. All the, and any small business would know this problem that you pay tax and you uh, have to buy stock and you're owed money, and all of those things meant that I didn't have any money, but he could show me on paper that I was doing quite well, which was very pleasing. I myself found school quite challenging as well, and I was, yeah, dys dyslexic, and it took me a long time to learn to read, and my mum was really, and my parents were really patient with me and didn't make me feel silly yeah. for not being able to read, but even though they didn't put that pressure on me, I found, again, I kind of felt a little stupid or yeah, that yeah. I wasn't yeah. going to succeed and I didn't a long time when I was young just felt lost and like there wouldn't be there wouldn't be a valuable place for me where yeah. I could where I could help my last question Dick would be what's next for you what's 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 next for Dick Smith 
oh, what's next? The Dixmouth thought, I'm in my 80th year and uh, risky adventures I'm not doing any more of. I'm concentrating on putting back and helping people. I've done so well out of this country. Uh, one of the things I'm actually working on is to try and get our legislation on nuclear energy changed. I'm a, I call myself an expert on renewables. I drove in the first solar vehicle race from Darwin down to Adelaide. I also held the record for solar vehicle from Perth to Sydney. I've got a solar powered car, which is operated from the, the Tesla. I've got a Tesla, but my it's a Nissan Leaf that is solar powered because it has to have separate uh, solar cells on the roof and then a completely separate battery in the garage because when the car's out driving during the day, it's not charging from the cells. So you need quite a large group, uh, organization if you're going to try and run a solar vehicle that's really coming from the sun. Most people who buy electric cars don't realize that they run off coal because they come home at night, plug the car in and it's being run from coal. So my little Nissan Leaf is being run uh, from solar cells to an extra battery, and then that extra battery is used to charge. The problem with that was that the Nissan Leaf costs about twice as much per kilometre to run as a petrol Leaf would cost yep. because you've got to write off the cost of the solar cells and the battery. And in fact, I've just had the Nissan Leaf 10 years and I've had to buy a new battery for it, which cost $10,000. And then the backup battery in the garage, it now has to be replaced. It's going to cost another $10,000. So I know the restrictions of renewables. And I'm utterly convinced the safest form of power generation is nuclear. You just don't get the old Soviet Union to build the station and you don't build it on an earthquake fault zone. Then you'll find it's incredibly safe. Countries like France have 70% nuclear power, have for 60 years. You never hear a murmur from it. There's no warnings from the Australian government about don't travel to France because it's all nuclear powered. And I just think the longer we delay changing the legislation, we're the only country in the world, in the OECD world, that has legislation that says we mustn't use nuclear. How's this, but we're the third largest seller of uranium in the world. I mean, talk about hypocrisy. Mm -hmm. We sell all this uranium, we mine it, we make a fortune from it, but then we say, oh no, but you shouldn't be using it. So I'm utterly convinced that we have to do something about climate change. It's very serious. I'm very concerned for my grandchildren. And the only way I believe the world will be able to do this is certainly put renewables in where you can, but there needs to be a form of backup and that needs to be nuclear. Every country will have to embrace it. It's incredibly safe. There's huge reserves of uranium. You can get uranium out of seawater. Can you? So, yeah, so when we go swimming, we're swimming in atoms of uranium. Wow. And uh, it's just more expensive to get out of seawater. There's, I think, 30,000 years worth of uranium in seawater alone. That's but these are things you don't hear. Um, if we decided to try and go completely renewables, which is what our Minister for Energy is saying, the problem that we've got is that you'd have to put in about 12 new snowy twos, 12 magnificent valleys on the east coast will have to be flooded with water and you need a dam upstream and a dam below downstream, which is going to be where everyone lives. And so to put 12 extra dams in, dams have the problems of collapsing and drowning. One dam, one dam uh, crashed, uh, collapsed in China and over 15,000 people were drowned. So dams are risky. Um, and the environment would be affected, right, when you flood oh, the land. And, and one of the problems with the pumped hydro, one dam has to be empty so nothing can grow there. So it's just mud and then it all erodes. Yeah. So it's just a terrible problem. I support the Snowy 2 pumped hydro we've got because they were two existing dams. And so where you have two existing dams, you can do it. We don't have another 12 locations of doing that. So I'm trying to get, I'm helping a young chap called Will Shackle who would be great if you could do a, a podcast with. Yeah. He's 17 years of age. Good on you. He runs something called Nuclear for Australia. He's as bright as anything. He's just come back from the big conference in the United Arab, Arab Emirates. Is that COP28? Yep. yep. He's just come back from that. He even met the French president there. Good on you. Quite amazing young bloke. And 
It's all very well for people of my age because we're not going to suffer from climate change. We won't be around. But for young people, I think it's important that the whole world embraces nuclear. It's, it's getting safer all the time and more efficient all the time. Uh, when it comes to storing the waste, at the moment we have a big nuclear reactor in Stanwell Tops in Sydney and they store the waste in a shed. I've been down there. Seen the shed, didn't go in to look at the waste, but it's stored there. They have a nuclear, what does that nuclear machine do there? That makes our, our nuclear medicine. One out of three Australians, this is how hypocritical it is. We've got a huge nuclear reactor making nuclear medicine that's changing, saving thousands of Australian lives. We make our own nuclear medicine for the scans and all of those things you do in a Sydney suburb. And when they end up with the waste, they ship it to Wollongong, then ship it to France where it's processed, but wait for it, it's then shipped back to Wollongong, put in a convoy with police with black, flashing blue lights, driven up into the Sydney suburb of Lucasites and put in a warehouse there. But my belief, I happen to have been out in South Australia in the outback, is uh, the Olympic Dam mine, and it's a very deep mine for uranium and copper. And there's huge, great caverns, completely dry, where we could store the world's uranium waste or nuclear waste. And it's where it's come from in the first place. So you could put it back there and it would give incredible income to Australia and be the safest place to store the waste in the world. One day we'll probably do that. I hope it is before we wreck the world. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Dick. I, I really appreciate your time today. Pleasure. And um, yeah, you helped me out when I was young and right. I'm glad I can come and share more of your story well, today. Great to see you again. Great interview. Thank you, Dick. Pleasure.